I would like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Megan Daum. Megan Daum has been an op-ed columnist at the Los Angeles Times since 2005. She is the author of three books, most recently the memoir, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House. Please give a warm welcome to Megan Daum. I know for a lot of you, Cheryl Strayed needs no introduction. Um, but if you will bear with me, I'll say a few words about this supremely gifted writer. Um, obviously, we're here tonight to talk about her spectacular new memoir, Wild, which chronicles a three-month hike along the Pacific Crest Trails and is receiving um, reviews for which I think um, the word rave is a total understatement. Um, Danny Shapiro uh, in the New York Times called it a literary and human triumph. Um, Dwight Garner, also in the New York Times, that's two New York Times reviews uh, so far. Um, Dwight Garner, who describes himself as a consummate non-crier, and I think he actually compared himself to Steve McQueen for some reason in this review, um, said he was obliterated by the book. In his words, the book is, quote, as loose and sexy and dark as an early Lucinda Williams song. It's got a punk spirit and makes an earthy and American sound. Um, and um, I will add also that um, I just learned backstage that the book is debuting at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list on Sunday. So, um, so Cheryl is also a novelist. She's the author of Torch, which was published in 2006 and was a finalist for a Great Lakes Book Award. Since 2010, she has been the much beloved and revered we might even say worshipped voice and brain and heart behind the advice column, Dear Sugar, which appears on the literary website, The Rumpus, and which she wrote quietly and anonymously until recently when her identity was revealed to great excitement. Um, mostly, though, um, Cheryl is a master practitioner of my favorite art, the, the essay. Um, many of us have had the pleasure of stumbling on her personal essays um, in Best American Essays and other anthologies over the years, and they are reliably honest and revelatory and just utterly human. She writes about life and death and literature and love and family, all the big themes, and she's managed to connect these dots um, seamlessly in, in the new book, and um, I'm really glad she's here. So with that, I will bring you Cheryl Strayed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, I should ask you for advice, but we need to talk know, about the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Wild is about a hike that you took quite a while ago. In the summer of 1995, okay. yeah, um, when I were, was 26. Right, you were 26. Um, you know, and one of the things that struck me about the book is it really um, it benefits from having had so much time go by between the event and the writing of it. Was it something that you were conscious of? Has this been a book that has been sort of um, in the back of your mind as something you wanted to take on, but you kind of, for whatever reason, didn't do it until now or a few years ago? Not, not really. It was only pretty recently, in 2008, that I that it occurred to me to write a book about this experience. Really? Yeah. I, um, and so many people have asked about that, which I think is interesting because, uh, you know, we, we write about our childhoods all the time and many years have passed, but somehow if we have an experience as an adult, especially an adventurous, adventurous one, I think uh, people think, well, you should write about that right away. But, you know, a couple of things were at play. I, I needed to... I finished hiking this trail when I was 26, and I needed to uh, grow up as a person and develop as a writer. And also that first book that I had inside of me, that I think um, so many people, uh, so many writers have that, that first book that they have to write before they can move on, and that was Torch. And so when I was uh, hiking the trail, I was not, I, I didn't think of myself as a nonfiction writer at the time. I really stumbled into nonfiction accidentally mm -hmm. through fiction. And so I had to write Torch, and I had to learn how to write. And then I had to um, let, let life um, take its twists and turns. I always say that memoir is not the art form of what happened, but rather what the writer ma make, how the writer makes sense of what happened, um, what's the meaning of what happened. And so it took me many years to really figure out 
um, that this was a story worth telling, and that had everything to do with what that hike meant. And so what was, was there a moment where you finally said, okay, now it's time to write this, it's time to start this? Well, what happened is, so I had finished, I'd written Torch, I sold it um, when I was pregnant with my first child, who's about to be eight next month, and by the time that book came out, I had two kids under the age of two. And so I, you know, it was, it was a very intense time. My, my career was finally, I'd finally published my first book at the same time that I'd finally become a mother. And I really knew that I had started a novel and I knew that it was going to take me years to write another novel, especially because I was, you know, also mothering young children. And so I had this sort of, this idea for an easy book. And that would be that I'd take those personal essays that you mentioned and put them all together and, I, and, and publish a collection of essays. And what, what I saw is that they sort of loosely told the story of my childhood in my 20s. And there was one piece missing, and that was my trip on the Pacific Crest Trail. So I started writing an essay to basically fill that hole. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's ludicrous now to think of that, that I thought that I could really tell this story in like 20 or 30 pages. And what happened is I, I started writing and I realized that this was a big story. Well, can and it you, became a book. Indeed. Yeah. Can you read um, a little bit for sure. us? Sure. So I'm going to read you a tiny bit from the prologue. Um, and basically, I should just tell you a little backstory. What happened is when I hiked this trail, hi, you guys. Um, <laughs> hi. When I hiked this trail, um, I had never gone backpacking before. The first time I went backpacking was the first night on the Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> So this is not a guidebook. <laughs> this is not what to do, how to, you know. So um, I, I, I was really in a bad way. Um, I was living in Minneapolis. I was, I was waiting tables, and there's nothing bad about that, but I was in a, um, just in a, like a total self-destructive spiral. I was married, and I had ruined my marriage because I'd been very promiscuous and terrible, and I got involved with a, a heroin addict, and... Um, and started using heroin myself, and all of these things were happening. And it was really in the wake of my mother's death. My mother died at the age of 45, very suddenly of cancer, and she was my only parent. And my family disintegrated. And I, in those years, I just was not only trying to grow up and figure out who I was, but I was trying to figure out how I was going to live in the world without my mother. And it was a mighty hard struggle. So I... I was reached the bottom, essentially, and there was a big blizzard um, in the Midwest, and my truck was mired in snow, and I had to go buy a shovel. So I went to REI, just outside of Minneapolis, to buy one. And I was standing in line, and um, there was this book um, near the cash register that said Pacific Crest Trail, Volume 1, California. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'd never heard of the Pacific Crest Trail. I'd heard of California, but I'd never been to California. <laughs> Um, and I thought, you know, that's interesting. And I read the back, and it told this story of this trail, this national scenic trail that went from the Mexican border to the Canadian border through California, Washington, and Oregon, up the crest um, of the Cascade Range in the Sierra Nevada. And um, I, something uh, called to me. And I didn't buy the book that night, but I did come back a, a day or two later and bought it. And a few months later, I was on the Pacific Crest Trail. I started in the Mojave Desert. And um, so I'm just going to read uh, a little bit from the prologue. But later I returned and bought the book. The Pacific Crest Trail wasn't a, word, a world to me then. It was an idea, vague and outlandish, full of promise and mystery. Something bloomed inside of me as I traced its jagged line with my finger on a map. I would walk that line, I decided, or at least as much of it as I could in about 100 days. I was living alone in a studio apartment in Minneapolis, separated from my husband and working as a waitress, as low and mixed up as I'd ever been in my life. Each day, I felt as if I were looking up from the bottom of a deep well. But from that well, I set about becoming a solo wilderness trekker. And why not? I'd been so many things already. A loving wife and an adulteress, a beloved daughter who now spent holidays alone, an ambitious overachiever, an aspiring writer who hopped from one meaningless job to the next while dabbling dangerously with drugs and sleeping with too many men. I was the granddaughter of a Pennsylvania coal miner, the daughter of a steelworker turned salesman. After my parents split up, I lived with my mother, brother, and sister in apartment complexes populated by single mothers and their kids. As a teen, I lived back to the land style in the Minnesota Northwoods in a house that didn't have an indoor toilet, 
electricity, or running water. In spite of this, I'd become a high school cheerleader and homecoming queen. And then I went off to college and became a left-wing feminist campus radical. <laughs> but a woman who walks alone in the wilderness for 1,100 miles, I'd never been anything like that before. I had nothing to lose by giving it a whirl. It seemed like years ago now, as I stood barefoot on that mountain in California, I should say, my boots fell over the side of the mountain. Um, so that's why I was barefoot. <laughs> in a different lifetime, really, when I'd made the arguably unreasonable decision to take a long walk alone on the PCT in order to save myself, when I believed that all the things I'd been before had prepared me for this journey, but nothing had or could. Each day on the trail was the only possible preparation for the one that followed. And sometimes even the day before didn't prepare me for what would happen next. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, so that's a good place to stop at REI, because I want to kind of yeah. um, focus in on this moment. Yeah. So you were buying a shovel, yeah. and then yeah, yeah. Um, you decided to do this trek that really only a, a very advanced, experienced hiker should, yeah. should yeah. do. Yeah. Now, I mean, I want to... Um, a, a lot of this book... Um, has to do with just how utterly unprepared you were for this. Right, so I'm right, hoping right. you can maybe take us through a little bit um, just just how unprepared you were, and, and right. does this shock you today? I well, mean, <laughs> when you the name of the backpack is Monster. It's Monster. Yeah. Um, maybe start by telling us a little bit about Monster. Well, it's so complex. This was I prepared or not? Because you know, it's it's one of those things. In some ways, you know, I go back and, and I'm, I I do think it's ridiculous, you know, and yet I also think. Well, I understand why I thought I was prepared, and that is, I'd grown up in the wilderness. I was, you know, I knew I felt safe in the country. Um, the wild places felt like home to me. It made sense, and I had done a lot of camping. I had gone canoeing and driven all over the country in my little pickup truck, um, and slept in the back by myself. Um, so I was a wanderer. And um, but, but but what the difference was is then. Apparently, there is a difference between like carrying everything on your back and like getting in your truck and driving to the. <laughs> the burrito wagon, you know, and th th I didn't put that together until I was like, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm actually walking away from civilization. But I, um, and the other thing is, you know, you go to REI, those of you in the room who've ever been to REI, you know, I love REI, and um, you go in there and you get to talking with these people, and they are just so, like, they're so passionate about gear, and they know everything <laughs> about it, and they tell you all about it, and so you buy the stuff, and I kept walking out of there thinking that I was too, also an expert, you know, because they had told me so much. And so, and being an American, it's like, I had all this stuff, you know, so that meant I was ready, you know? And um, so... But then it turned out that it, was, it wasn't the case. And so I, you know, I also, I, so I, the night before um, my hike, I flew to Los Angeles. And, um, and it was my first time in Los Angeles, actually. I flew here with all my stuff. And um, this, this friend of a friend drove me to the little town of Mojave, where I checked into this motel. And that was the first time that I ever even packed my pack. Like, all the gear I bought was still in its packaging. Don't they make you at, at REI? Does, no. At REI, they make you pack it, though. Is yeah, that, but, but, but with their stuff. Like, I mean, they, they would put things... But they didn't... They would say to me, you know, it's a good idea if you pack your pack and then, like, walk around, you know, before you go hike the PCT. But I, I just was busy, you know? I was... <laughs> I, I never got the chance. And um, <laughs> so the morning of the hike you know, really one of the most staggeringly humble days of my life, you know, because I realized I can't get all this stuff in the pack. I had way too much stuff. And what was interesting, last week I was in New York, um, and I was reading the excerpt from the book where I list all the stuff that I'm putting in my pack. And I had read that same passage in Seattle just a few days before. And the audience was just like roaring in Seattle. Seattle. <laughs> in New York, they're just, they're silent as stones. <laughs> and I just... I had to stop, and I was like, you guys actually think this is okay, don't you? Like, they, they, they didn't know that it was, like, I was taking too much stuff. You know, they're like, that sounds good, you know? <laughs> they would have added things. They, they think REI is like a store where you buy gum, you know? And, um, and I was, so, so I had to, like, actually mid-reading, like, switch. But, so I get I have all this stuff. And I, I, I cannot lift my pack. Like, I get it. And, and I also, I, I started in the desert, where there's apparently no water. And um, <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Minnesota. OK, there's a lake every, you know, 10 feet. But um, 
So I had to carry that first day out there, 24.5 pounds of water. And I don't know how much all the other crap weighed, um, but it was a lot. And um, I couldn't lift my pack, um, even a hair. And so I had to um, just strap it on my back, you know, get down there and strap it on my back and do all these gymnastics to get myself up. And, um, and then I, you know, I thought that's what, um, that's what backpackers did. Like, did. like I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know it was bad. You know? I knew it was heavy. But, um, so I went out there, and I didn't see anyone, another human being for the first eight days of my hike. And so even all that time, I thought, well, this sucks, but maybe this is just how it is, you know? And um, so it wasn't until I started meeting other hikers who would just look at me in horror that I knew. And I, I want to get to the other hikers in a second, but I want to just keep on this. So the boots, you had the wrong boots. Right. They were yeah. too small. Yeah. And so at what point did you realize that? Well, pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly, my feet were just killing me. And... Um, you know, I, again, too, I hadn't broken the boots in, another mistake. But, but even the boots never broken because they were uh, a little too small. And, um, and they just, even once I did get the right size boots, I mean, at my feet. And, and a lot of PCT, a lot of long distance hikers, you know, if you have foot trouble, it's kind of like you start to have foot trouble. It's really hard to get rid of foot trouble. And it was just like all the way through. Yeah, I have to say, I, I, I got a staph infection from blisters just reading the, the book. <laughs> so thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it was your, your descriptions of the feet and just the whole, I mean, it's something that we don't, I mean, we think about a little bit in terms of walking around, but your feet are really your primary yeah. instrument when you're... Yeah, when you're on, walking 1,100 kind of miles. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. obviously, I, it was a brilliant it was... notion I just came up with. <laughs> um, but um, so, so now, you, you run into a lot of people on, on the trail, and I was curious in the book, and I mean, I think this kind of question comes up when people think about how you write a memoir. Did you remember all these people very vividly? Have these been people that have sort of stayed with you all these years? Or did you kind of like find yourself writing and think like, oh, oh yeah, like that guy. And what about these guys? Well, I met, I mean, really so few people on the trail that every one of them I absolutely remembered. And also, so I kept a journal. I was a, a, a journaler all through my 20s and into my 30s till I had kids. And I... Um, you know, so on the trail, I would journal every day and sometimes a few times a day. And so whenever I met somebody, it was a big event. And I would, you know, really chronic, I would really record. And, you know, I had that fiction writer's impulse to, you know, like I would write, the doc, you know, scene, it would be like a scene. I would write what we said to each other, what, how they looked, you know. Um, and so I had that I, that I could use. I, I, I've stayed in touch with some of the people I met on the PCT. Um, and then others, I went and searched on the internet and found them. And some of them I couldn't find because their names were common enough that, you know, there are like 8,000 mm -hmm. of them, and so I couldn't find them. Um, but then what's been happening is they're showing up. Like, is anyone in the room? Did I meet anyone on the trail? Yeah. Because last night, I, the guy who I call Tom in the, in the book, last night I was in San Francisco, and I looked up, and last time I saw him, you know, it was on the PCT. And um, he's there, and I was just like, oh, it was so wonderful to see him. Wow. And, um, and so a few people have come back to me in that way. But it, the, the most embarrassing thing about the, you know, there's this place in the book where I meet these three um, young men, and their trail nickname is the Three Young Bucks, um, which, so it's really fun to meet them. And um, they, uh, I really became good friends with this guy, Rick, and, and I, you know, had this big crush on him on the trail. And, and I thought, I think he had also had a crush on me. But, you know, we never acted on that crush. We went on into our lives and we're friends now. But when I was writing the book, I was writing about this, this crush thing. And I realized how humiliating it would be if, in fact, I was wrong. And, like, he, <laughs> and like he actually didn't have a crush on me. And so I had to email him and say, Rick, this is really awkward. You know, because we're, like, friends. You know, he was at my wedding. You know, this is really awkward, but... Did you have a crush on me in 1995? And, uh, and he was like, "Oh my God, yes!" Oh, you know, so oh my God. So we processed it. My husband was really amused. Um, <laughs> really amused by that. Yeah. So we got to process our feelings all these years later. But prob probably a lot of people had crushes on you because you were the, the only, only woman. Only yeah, woman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, were there even any? I guess you wanted some, no, there some, some groups women. of women, but you yeah. were the only lone woman. Right, on I was only trail. the other women I met were with their male partners, and then um, there were these two women who were uh, with each other. And um, but um, yeah, you know what's so interesting about that? Because I had come off this time of my life, 
um, that I was so relying on sort of sex and, you know, like what I think a lot of young women do, you know, really using um, that the sex to be sort of accepted or, you know, male, male attention being a really important piece of their self-confidence. And what was really strange out there is suddenly that whole aspect of my personality, um, that whole flirty side of me, which I still am a big flirt today, you know, that, that side of me was really muted and um, I became sort of one of the guys. And I, I didn't have any of that, that sort of the, the artifice, of, like the sort of femininity stuff that we have. You know, I didn't have lipstick or, you know, I was wearing these, the same clothes every day and they reeked and um, I was dirty. And it was a really great thing for me to let go of that part of my life for that time. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, there's, in this kind of book, or we, we see books like this, um, you know, there's, there's often a conceit of, woman falls apart, takes an epic journey, and has revelations, um, sometimes at, at every turn. Um, and one of the great things about your book is that, unlike, unlike some books, um, one of which we won't mention, you, you <laughs> don't have a revelation like every three pages. Right. You know? um, and you really, you know, there are just extended passages of raw, unmitigated grief. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you did consciously when you were writing this, mm -hmm. or...? I mean, that was your experience, I guess, but did you ever feel under pressure to sort of say like, oh, I gotta kind of have something, have the clouds part and somebody speak to me from above in this moment? I really was so conscious of working against that. I did not want to do that. I wanted to write a book that felt as true as a book can be. And, you know, I think... Um, you know, we want to. I think. I think that we have this this tendency, as certainly as writers, like we think, okay, she's going to be all fucked up at the beginning, and she's going to come out the Buddha. You know, <laughs> and um, and um, you know, if you knew me, and and that's what's interesting too, is even at the time that I say to you, like I was at the bottom of my life, I'll tell you that I was also, you know, uh, a lot like I am now. You know, I was. I was. I, I had a job. I had friends. I had a happy, you know, life. And. Um, but inside I was suffering. And, you know, this isn't to say, I mean, my friends who knew me well knew that, that I was doing all these fucked up things and self-destructing, but it wasn't like, you know, I was, um, you know, completely a wreck. You know, I, I did have a lot of strengths and obviously I drew on those strengths to even decide to go on this trip. And then I came out and, you know, a, a lot of, I mean, I did feel transformed by the journey, but the transformation was discreet. Um, and I was still the same person. I still am the same person, you know? And I really loathe those, that kind of redemption. Um, I, I love redemption, but I hate redemption tales that sort of, uh, you know, pretend that redemption is this tidy thing, you know? And, I mean, the, what I, what I uh, learned from the PCT has, has borne out over years and years of time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it didn't all just happen, like, you know, over the course of that summer, even though when the film is made, that's what it's going to say. <laughs> you know it is, right? <laughs> That'll be like the tagline, yeah. Oh, well. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> so, um, as, as some of you may know, Reese Witherspoon's production company has optioned the That's right, rights. yeah. Um, and I, I was reading the book. I think I told you, I, I was like, I wonder which A-list actress <laughs> is going to option this because it's perfect. Um, it just really lends itself to to a movie. Um, were, were you surprised by Reese? Like, you know, were you writing with a particular type of actress in mind, or was it even the furthest thing from you? Uh, as no. you were walking, I know. You, as you were walking along, were you thinking like, who's gonna? Yeah, play I was me like, who's later? gonna play me? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no. Yeah. I, I never. I, it never um, occurred to me really um, to. When I was writing, it never, you know, I never thought about an actress or anything. And it really just, um, you know, it was just very, like once the advanced reading copies were available, it just sort of happened really quickly. And Reese, you know, read the book. And the thing that was so amazing, I mean, I'm so honored that Reese has optioned the book and wants, wants to play the role because um, we, we had this long conversation and she is such a, she got the book so deeply. She, she said the st same stuff you just said when we were talking about um, redemption and, and that it isn't neat and tidy and that, you know, the, the complexity, the layers and layers of the book. And she got it. She's a really smart woman and a really great reader. We instantly started talking about the writers we both love, Alice Monroe, Laurie Moore, you know, and it, I instantly felt a connection to her. I felt like I could trust this story in her hands. 
Um, I want to ask you also kind of a, a writerly question. Confession, it's not a confessional book, but it's a very revealing book. And I think that's true of your writing. It's, it's a real, um, it's a very consistent trait of your writing. You're, you're very generous in terms of talking about yourself, but it's not confessional. Mm -hmm. um, again, is that something that you think about or is it just sort of a matter of voice? Or I mean, how do you kind of walk that line? I think about it a lot. Um, I, I went through this little, I mean, I really, because I get the, asked this question a lot, you know, uh, what, you know, what is this difference between confessionalism? And for some reason, it's a kind of like sentimentality. Um, it has a negative connotation. And I've always threaded, I've always walked that line very closely. My work is very emotionally expressive. And I've always risked that, you know, for fee and, 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 and of course, the, the the negative part of that can be people can accuse you of being sentimental. But, mm -hmm. So I've always tried to express emotions without being sentimental. And I've always tried to confess without, without having that kind of negative um, connotation that confessionalism has. And I think that there are two things at play with that. And one is that um, when, as a writer, you find yourself um, telling a story about yourself or revealing something you know, with, where the impulse really is um, to kind of... Uh, scandalize, you know, or, or be, because, you know, you think um, that's, that's this kind of big thing that people are going to respond to in a big way. And like, for example, in Wild, there are, there are a whole bunch of um, scenes that I could have written about, like using heroin, you know. Not on I, the trail. Not, no, on, the not trail. on the trail. Okay. But, you know, that in my life before the trail. <laughs> and that I didn't, you know, that, that that's present in the book, but it's scaled back because I wrote those scenes and then I realized, what does the book need? Um, and... And why am I telling? You know, do you need to see three times um, this thing, or do you need to see it once, or even like a half a time? And so I think that um, I'm always asking myself, like, for what purpose um, am I telling? Am I confessing this this thing? And I also think I will say, just in defense of confessionalism, that I think a lot of women's writing is framed as such. Um, women who have historically, you know, like Sylvia Plath and. Uh, you know, Anne Sexton, and women who have written very boldly about their personal lives, um, I think that, that that label has been used to um, marginalize them and shut them up. Was there, um, were there points in the story, in the book, where you thought, oh gosh, maybe I shouldn't say this, it's going to sort of eclipse the other things I'm going to say? What were you the most afraid of when you were writing this book? The most difficult things, the most difficult thing in writing a memoir is writing about other people. And so I had to tell, you know, there's no way to write a memoir without accounting for your parents. You have to write about your mother and your father. You have to say basically who they were to you. And, you know, I, had a, I didn't have a good father. My father was abusive. And I had to tell that story. And I wanted to tell as little of it as I, as I could. Because this wasn't what the book was about, but you need to know... Um, who I was and what what was in my background, and so in some of that, you know, I, I, is you know, I, I I don't I didn't write about my father out of a place of anger or rage. You know, I've forgiven him and, and accepted it and let it go. We don't have a relationship, but I don't want to, you know, I didn't take any pleasure in you know saying those negative things about him, and so that's difficult. Or writing about my siblings, um, who who I love and care about, and don't want um, I don't want them to feel exposed or hurt by what I write about them. And so really having to um, be very careful about what I say, that's really the difficult stuff. And then there was also this, in the second draft, so I, I wrote the first draft and then my writer's group read it and my editor read it and everyone's like, well, but what did you do for going to the bathroom out there? <laughs> so I was like, okay. I had to write one scene about shitting in the desert, you know, so, <laughs> so I that was embarrassing. I wonder how going to handle that. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon is going to um, shit in the desert. She's going to shit in the desert. <laughs> She's not going to be able to dig a hole because the desert, again, mysteriously, the, the ground was made of rock. It wasn't, yeah. Yeah, I imagine sand dunes, but no. It was, yeah. <laughs> the desert was a surprise to me. <laughs> so were the mountains. I mean, the whole thing was confusing. Are, are, you ever, are, are you ever just shocked when you look back? I mean, one of the shocking things about your lack of preparation, I mean, I don't mean to pile it on or anything, but um, you had no money. I yeah, mean, you yeah. would mail yourself these care packages, and they would have, like, 
a twenty dollar bill in them. Yeah, not like and a twenty a, a twenty dollar bill. A yeah. twenty, sorry. Yeah. And I mean, this was not nineteen seventy four. This was ninety five. Yeah. So, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, what's so funny about that question? People ask that, but it's as it's not as if like I had this other bank account where there was ten thousand dollars. I just hadn't thought to you know put it in the boxes. It was what I was thinking. And this is truly, truly the gift of having grown up like I did, which is without money, um, is that I watched my mother um, and my stepfather over and over and over and over again um, make it all work on next to nothing. And there were so many times that we really had absolutely no money. And we always got by, and we always did fine. And we didn't always get what we wanted, and we weren't always comfortable. In fact, a lot of times we weren't, but we got by. And we, did, we, had, a li- we had the kind of life that we wanted. And so what I decided is that, you know, I couldn't actually afford, I think that if I'd grown up in a different way, I would have seen, oh, you can't afford to go, um, you know, on this backpacking trip. Um, But instead, what I said was, this is how much money I have, and I'm going to, there's nothing, nowhere to spend it out in the wilderness anyway, so just go. And so what I found is that, yeah, I a lot of times, you know, was completely out of money, and I would be, I would come upon like a, a restaurant or something, and I wouldn't be able to purchase food, which was really, really torturous. Um, I mean, brutally painful um, because, um, you know, I was so hungry out there and so deprived of, like, good food. It was all dehydrated stuff. But, you know, if, if I'd waited around, you know, for, to have enough money, I would have never taken this trip. But I felt like you could just ask somebody. I wanted you to just say, <laughs> could you buy me this ice cream cone? Oh, you know, but so many people did. So many people gave to me. I mean, you know, everywhere I went, people were were so generous with me and so giving to me. And, you know, I was reading in Boston um, last week, and I gave my whole little talk and reading, and there was this elderly gentleman in the front row. And so when I opened it up for questions, he said, "Um, did you ever have sex with anyone in exchange for food? (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, I said, no, but would you like to go to dinner? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what else do you say? He's like basically like, you know, asking me if I was a prostitute. But um, the thing is, I, I, I maybe w- I would have considered it. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, I want to switch gears for a second here and talk about sugar. Sugar. You are sugar. Um, this was an advice column in, for the Rumpus uh, literary website very popular, I think largely because of you. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about how that got started and, and how it all sort of became what it has become? Well, I had just finished the first draft of Wild and sent it off to my editor. I was waiting for her notes. And into this void slipped an email from Steve Almond, who's this wonderful writer and a friend of mine. And he had been writing this column uh, Dear Sugar, and he just, uh, you know, was having some fun with it, was, but it wasn't really his thing. And so he decided to stop writing it. It was a job that paid nothing, so it's no surprise he wanted to hand it over to me. And, um, and I, he said, you know, I just think, I just have a feeling that this would be something that, for you. And even though, you know, my first thought was, well, how, who am I to give advice? I don't have any, you know, experience really as a therapist, or I hadn't even really gone to therapy much. But then I thought, you know, I'll just try. And I did. And... I really uh, discovered it as it went along. And what I found is uh, that, that the thing I do have to offer is that I'm a storyteller, you know? I'm a writer. And the things that have given me the most consolation and the, and the most um, uh, sort of inspiration have been the books I've loved. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to offer that with, with, you know, a sort of vengeance. And so in the column, I started when I would give people, when I, when I give people advice about their lives, I often tell stories from my own life or sometimes stories about friends or my poor husband, who's a character now in the column called Mr. Sugar. And um, <laughs> so you sort of like involuntarily, you know, been this, made this character. But um, so I started to do that. And what was interesting, it was scary at first because I did. I thought people would think, well, why is she telling us about her being confessional when we're asking her about me? You know? But people got it. And, they, and it became this thing where I think people would really just um, see themselves in the letter writer, even if the situation didn't apply to them, and then in the answer. And I, and I think that that's what you know, personal writing can do, is that, that, you, that you can go so deep that, that it becomes universal, that people recognize themselves even in stories that have nothing to do with their lives in, in explicit ways. And so 
did it just sort of, you just kind of got more and more letters? I mean, yeah, how, I just, did people, it become this, it's like a phenomenon, truly? It was like an internet fire, you know? Like, I would just, I would just, I mean, I remember when I first started, it would be like if two people, like, commented at the end of the column, I was like, yeah, that was a good week. And, um, and but people started to read it, and they would post it on Facebook and Twitter, or they would email their friends and say, you have to read this. And that's just how it happened. I didn't, you know, there was never an, any advertising or, you know, you know, I couldn't advertise it, which, you know, like the egomaniac that I am, it was so painful to be like, I can't put this thing on my Facebook page that I wrote. You know, I can't say, hey, look at this. But, and you know. the idea of the anonymity was just, that's a convention of advice columnists, but not always. Was Steve Ullman writing it? Under he was writing it anonymously. Under, was, he, was he sugar? Or was he was he, sugar. He was and he just <laughs> handed it over to me, and I said, you know, we, I announced on the website, like, look, there's a new sugar in town who's a little bit different than the old sugar. <laughs> and, um, and it was at first anonymous. You know, we batted around the idea of having it be like, ask Cheryl, you know. But then my main thing was, um, one, that it would just be interesting to be anonymous, but two, if I made a jackass out of myself, I would never, I wouldn't have to say it was me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, the, and there was that distinct possibility that I would have sucked at the column. I mean, I remember very, very being very clear about that. And so I thought, well, if, if it bombs, I can just sort of quietly tiptoe away and never claim it. Um, but I always, you know, pretty quickly I knew I'm going to someday say, this is my column. And so I just did on Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people have a favorite sugar column. What's your favorite? Oh, that is so hard. That's so hard. Or what's your something that means top five? What, yeah. what do you remember? I mean, what kind of just what, what's a sort of salient piece of advice or, or a person that you've run across, an advice seeker that stayed with you? There's so it, it makes my head spin. There's so many. One thing that's really really striking to me is um, one that uh, is called the truth that lives there, and it's it's this column in which I answer like three or four letters. Usually I just answer one letter, but I was getting so many letters from people who were in these relationships, romantic relationships, where they loved the partner, um, but they wanted to leave. They wanted to end that relationship because for whatever reason, and they felt so tortured about that because that, they loved that person. There, were, there was no real reason to leave. And, um, and I answered so many because I had so many letters like that in my inbox that I thought you know, I could cram a few together. And um, I wouldn't say that that column, in terms of just like the writing, you know, is like the, my best column. You know? But I think that it's one of those columns that I realized after I wrote it um, how much people uh, responded to me giving them permission to do what was painful and to um, break somebody else's heart if it meant that they needed to open up their life. And, mm -hmm. and I said to, you know, to the people who wrote to me, I said, you know, it's okay if you, it's okay for you if you need to leave, you know? And that, that person that you're with is, you know, doesn't probably, um, isn't getting what they should get from you anyway because you don't want to be with them. And that really rose out of my own experience of my first marriage that I had to leave, you know. And so that's the column that I'm constantly, everywhere I go on this book tour, um, every night somebody's come up to me and said, you changed my life. And I say, well, you know, <laughs> what, did, what did I do? And they'll say, I left my wife because of you. <laughs> And I'll be like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, you know. But I mean, so I've wrecked a lot of marriages. And um, so that stays with me. But I mean, I, but, but I, mean <laughs> I mean, it is funny. It's a funny, you know, but it is one of those contradictions of life that, um, that sometimes we do have to do what uh, is, is kind of ugly and painful in order to get to that next thing. Almost so sugar, all the time. Sugar, sugar will tell that truth, you know, and I think that that's um, really important to me. And and there's going to be a sugar book. There's a sugar, sugar book. sugar anthology coming out, right? A, a collection of the sugar columns called Tiny Beautiful Things out July 10th from Vintage. Nice. Um, okay, well, why don't we open it up to questions? The, the idea of redemption, uh, which is not a neat package, really resonates, which you touched on. Um, but you also speak about your father and not writing from a place of, of rage or anger. Have you written from that place before? And do you think that good writing can come from that place? I do think that good writing can come from rage and anger. Um, but in my own life, um, that, that's always been when it's about something that's external, like if, you know, a political writing or that sort of thing, where you're, you're really um, being like a citizen and advocating a position. And, 
And I do think that that can be a really important piece of the, of the, of the puzzle in terms of writing. But I have found, you know, writing about relationships, you know, if you, if you do have that, um, if you haven't kind of come to grips with that situation, I mean, and I, and I think in a lot of ways, writing helped me come to grips with my father. You know, I forgave all the people I needed to forgive. I forgave them finally through writing. And, and that too, you know, I mean, I say I've forgiven my father. I'm going to forgive, I'm going to have to forgive him again in a year and in 10 years and 20 years. And, you know, it's something that continually circles back into different places. And I think that for me, when writing about others or writing about people who failed us, you know, like my father failed me, that it, it has to do with um, acceptance. Like, it, not so much um, saying, you know, it's okay that, that these things happened, but that I accept that they are true and that this, these are the, the facts of my life. And when you do that, there's just this wonderful shift that happens inside that makes some room for kindness and makes some room for understanding. And I do, I think that, the, that when you do that, like the, the, the terrain that you can kind of like bring into the, you know, onto the page is just bigger and wider. Um, this is totally random, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask you. In your interview in Poets and Writers, there's a photograph of you wearing this mood ring, <laughs> which I happened to get from my grandmother who um, got it in Duluth, Minnesota. And I had to ask you where you got yours. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You know, it's in my purse. It's backstage. It's a little different than your ring. Yeah, is, okay. let, me see, give, let me see the side angle of yours. Yeah, it's very, very similar. Maybe it is the same. You know, I got mine in the, this boutique in the airport in Portland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Damn, you know, but not in Duluth, yeah. Well, before you took the trip, uh, what, did you do any reading and nature writing like Thoreau or Muir or any of those? Might have influenced you to, 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 to help decide to take the trip or maybe after when you were writing it that might have helped you shape it? I'm sad to say it's so pathetic. I didn't read any of those nature dudes before I took the trip. Um, I did later, you know, when I, um, you know, just in later years, I came to those writers. But I didn't, um, I, it didn't really occur to me um, to, to, read, to read them before I went out on the, the trip. I don't know why. But um, I, I, in later years, like John Muir is such a, I mean, I read all of his journeys in the Sierra Nevada, was so struck by how many things just remain true, you know, in spite of, like, it, there's something about being in the wilderness that is, is, doesn't ever change, you know? And I really saw, I recognized that in, th in those writers you named. I was curious, many times when people spend so much time in the wilderness like you did, uh, they come to a, like a, some kind of spiritual insight. And I was wondering if, in the time that you spent out there, if, did you have any uh, insight into what you felt uh, was the nature of God or lack thereof or just some kind of um, insight? I mean, th th those have been questions I've been answering and asking my whole life. And I never, I, do, I was not raised in any religious tradition. Uh, my mom was raised Catholic and, and, and as an adult didn't, didn't raise me Catholic or we never went to church or anything. And so, and then when my mom died, you know, I, I remember when my mom got sick, my mom died seven weeks after she got sick. And, um, and I remember being sort of angry at her that she hadn't forced me to go to church because I felt that I wished that I had God um, or some idea of God because I flailed, you know, in that. Um, and, and so it's something that, that I've always asked myself. And I think that, you know, On the Trail was the beginning of this really strong sense I have and about this, um, the, the, the divine is like within us, you know. And I felt that so much um, in the silence of the trail and the beauty and also how, how small we are, uh, all of these sort of sacred values that have to do with humility and gratitude and divinity um, were incredibly present for me um, in those days on the trail. Was there material you wish you had left out, and was there material you wish you had put in? The word clitoris is not, <laughs> is not in the book, and um, it had been in the book. My editor and I wrestled about that, and I regret that I lost that battle. I shouldn't have taken it out. Um, so there's that, but what... <laughs> I mean, shouldn't the word clitoris be in every book? I mean, haven't we earned that now? You know, after birthing all these children and, you know. Um, but um, let's see, that's a great question. Like, is there something I, you know, the book's still fresh enough that there's nothing I regret having in there yet, but I'm sure someday I will. 
Yeah, um, yeah, but no, I'm okay now, I think. Yeah. One of the things that I have a ton of respect for you about is just your earnestness and your kind of reverence. And I think those aren't very cool traits. And I, I've just always been curious about if you've ever felt pressure or temptation to give that up and to be more cynical and in this journey of, of making it as a writer, if that's been tough to hold on to. I remember when I was like in third grade, this mean girl was like, why are you always smiling? You know? And, um, and I remember thinking, well, why am I always smiling? You know? <laughs> like, and it was uncool. Like I felt, I remember that was the first time it, it seemed um, uncool to be kind of earnest and, and the, you know, the optimistic, I guess. And um, I think that those traits are often associated with, you know, being kind of stupid. And, um, and <laughs> you know, we all know, right? Like, the cool people are, like, aloof and, you know, skeptical and, you know, and all that stuff. And I've just never been able to do that. And, um, and, and it's not in my personality and it's not in my life and in my writing, you know. And um, what I finally had to believe in, you know, and I wished a lot of times, like when I was in graduate school, I did, I went to graduate school with, you know, like cool, actually cool writers, you know, who had more of an attitude. And, um, and I felt uncool, you know, in the face, in, in comparison to them. But, you know, it was also a really wonderful experience because um, what I came to realize, you know, through that kind of um, being so tested against people with different, like, aesthetics and different literary values, and different ideas about what was cool and what was important and what wasn't, is that, uh, you know, the people who really, the writers who really succeeded, um, what they did is they, they stayed true to their vision, whether that was like the, the cool vision or the uncool vision or the sincere or the, and uh, you know, so I, I finally just said, you know, I'm gonna be sincere in my work. And, um, and if that's, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do really um, about whether people, welcome that or, or shun it. So it had to do with like just trusting it. What are you going to do in the eventuality that your children need to read your book and then um, when are you going to take them on the Pacific Coast? Or oh, yeah. With, with all my books, really. I just, I'm, my kids know about them and I'm going to say, you know, when you're ready to read them, you read them and, and maybe they'll never be ready, you know. I think that they know that I write, they're six and seven, so they're, they're very young. But, you know, as they get older, I'll definitely tip them off that, you know, there's a sex scene with this hippie in Ashland. You know, you might want to skip that. Or, um, uh, um, but I'll be glad I left out the word clitoris. You know, <laughs> and um, but you know, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I really do think the, the other children of writers always say, "Look, you know, they had to grow up and come to their own peace with their parents before they could read their work." And I'm totally fine with that. And we've already, my husband and I have already taken our kids out on the PCT just for day hikes and stuff. But our big plan is in a, in a few years when they're like 11 or 12, before they're surly teenagers, but when they're like physically sound enough to carry a pack, we're going to make them hike the Washington section of the PCT. <laughs> it's like 500 miles. <laughs> I have a question about your process. I know, I think you've, in something else I've read of yours, you've mentioned that if you're writing about your husband, you'll get his permission, sort of. But I wonder how you manage that with sort of peripheral family members or friends. So in some cases, I like with my husband, um, when I'm going to write about him where I'm revealing something that's really his personal life, we'll talk about it. And I'll say, you know, I want to write about this, and here's why. And he trusts me, and, and um, you know, he's, always, he's never said, please don't write about that. Even when it was personally painful for him and embarrassing, um, uh, but he also, you know, he knows what I'm doing. And so he, he tries to stretch in that direction, too. Um, and then other people, I, I do try to, like in Wild, uh, I changed certain people's names. Uh, so, like, my, I write about my ex-husband a lot in the book. And I write all about our relationship and our breakup. And I changed his name so, and, and, and a couple identifying details. So if he doesn't want to stand up and say, uh, that's me, he doesn't have to. Um, and, and with my siblings, you know, I try to walk that line between telling what I need to tell, that the part of it that's my story, and, and then not going into um, really their stories. Like my, my brother is a big character in the book. He's in some of the, he's really in the book's most painful scenes. And I don't say um, terrible things about him, but you know, I do say some difficult things about him. And so I was really nervous. Um, I gave him the book uh, last fall. I went to Minnesota for a couple days and I handed him a copy of the book. and. Um, he read it and loved it. And he's, he and I had really the most profound conversation we've ever had um, about this book. 
And it was, you know, so often we think of memoir as this thing that, you know, our families become enraged and disown us. But really, they can also do, they can also mend some wounds and heal some wounds. And, and we, we, there were parts of me that he saw in Reading Wild that he never saw. And there were things that, about himself that he hadn't understood. And so we had this in, incredibly um, great conversation that brought us closer together. So I got an email from my ex-husband. And... And my heart just went, you know. Um, but he said, thank you so much um, for such a, a book, and I'm so proud of you. And thank you for writing with such insight about our marriage, which was pretty amazing. I always picked good men. <laughs> While you were walking on the trail by yourself and, like, how your kind of inner dialogue went, how much you talked to yourself and, like... Um, what percentage would you say of your time you were in agony and wanting to stop? What percentage were you in like revelatory ecstasy and how much were you just totally bored to tears? And maybe just how your perception of those amounts of time has, has changed in your, in your memory over time and also how you feel that compares to your experience of like motherhood. My first child was 11 pounds. And I gave birth to him, not in a hospital, no drug. I didn't even have like a glass of water, you know. <laughs> and um, and the labor went on forever. Um, and I did, I did when I was giving labor, I was giving birth. I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of like the PCT, only like a hundred times worse. And um, but I, I mean, I'm joking, but actually, I did call upon that what I had to do on the trail, which because I so often was walking while I was in pain, and I had to just um, really. Uh, work with myself mentally and say, okay, this is, this is uncomfortable and we're just going to go through it and we're just going to go step by step and moment by moment. And, so, and it's hard to say, you know, it's one of those weird things that like in retrospect, um, every long distance hiker I've talked to and I've met many of them on this tour, you know, they all say, oh yeah, you know, it's so painful and my feet hurt and all these things, but oh yeah, we would do it in a, in a minute again. It was like the best thing I've ever done, even though it was so often, and it was often really boring and monotonous and I would just be longing for some, something else in my head. And it, what's interesting now, in 1995, there weren't, you know, cell phones or iPods or, and people now who hike the trail, they have music with them they have, they're checking their email, they're, they're able to uh, listen to books on tape or whatever, it's not tape, but digital books, I guess they're called. And, um, and it does change the experience because you can occupy your mind. Where was, when I was hiking, I had to occupy my mind myself. And I didn't break these things down in percentages, you know, suffering, ecstasy, you know. I can tell you it was like, a, ecstasy was a tiny, tiny, tiny. <laughs> usually, usually ecstasy was like, I'd get to town and I could get it if I could buy a cheeseburger or something. But um, pretty, pretty unique. But, you know, at the end of the day, there would be those experiences of, like, seeing that sunset or, or seeing, you know, something really amazing on the trail, like a, an animal, like a, when I would come across an animal. Or, and there was something really powerful and fundamental about that, and I know you all know what I'm talking about because you've all had those experiences too. And um, those things are incredibly worth all the suffering. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. you.